We all know someone like Bill Kelly. Those of us most fortunate have a Bill that we can call on, commiserate with, and just count on when things are good or when we need a helping hand. You know, those true blue, red-blooded American family men who would literally give you the shirt off their back? That was Bill Kelly. Good husband, good father, good brother, friend, and neighbor. No one had a harsh word to say. And he and his wife, Gail, who were nearing their empty nest years, were still hopelessly in love, taking nightly strolls together on their rural road in Harrison County, Mississippi. The two had met at work in 1979, barely out of high school, and became inseparable. Bill showed Gail who he was from the very beginning. Uh, we met at, uh, at Clearspan. It was on Lorraine Road. It used to be um, a truss manufacturer. They built trusses and floor joists and stuff. Bill did uh, floor joists. He built floor joists and I drew the floor joists that he built. Really what did it was I went out into the shop one day and fell right on my butt because it was wet and I went straight down and he came over and he picked me up. And then we started talking and stuff and he had built um, little block squares for my drafting chairs so they wouldn't wobble and stuff. And so we just came pretty close, pretty fast. Within six months of dating, Gail was pregnant and the two got married just six months later. And it worked. Bill, the baby of a very tight-knit Southern family, and Gail, the military brat from California. Their differences only complemented their relationship. As they grew their family, they only grew in love. It's a rare find in today's world, and even rarer in a couple so young. By 2007, they had raised three children in their dream home that they'd built. Gail had drawn the plans and Bill built their home out on Mark West Road, a long dead-end rural road in the Orange Grove community of Gulfport. Their youngest child, Danielle, was finishing her first two years of community college and was planning to leave home to attend the University of South Alabama in Mobile, just over an hour's drive from home. Their last Christmas with kids living at home, it had been a great one. Their son, Brandon, had flown in from Hawaii where he was doing mission work. Eldest daughter, Kristen, lived just a few miles away with her husband. Yes, it had been a good holiday and they were expecting nothing but a happy new year. You are listening to episode seven of Telling Lives season two, Alcohol, Intoxicants, Accidents and America. I'm your host, Elizabeth Clark. As the holidays ended, and the Kellys prepared for their empty nest in the next couple of weeks. They had done their job and done it well, raising three responsible, hardworking children who had become good people. It's what every parent desires. Now they could focus more on themselves and keeping healthy as they entered their 50s. So they got back into their regular routine, which included a nightly walk. He had, um, I wouldn't say health problems, no. but uh, high cholesterol. He's kind of borderline getting diabetic, and he kind of freaked out about that. So we went walking every single night. So it was a routine. That that's what we did. We carried a flashlight after work. We went walking. And where did y'all go walking? On Marquis Road. We walked. We started off two miles, then we got to three miles. And, and it's a rural area. Oh, yeah. And it's a dead end road. It's a dead end road. So people coming down that road most of the time are coming down there because they live there and they're going to see somebody that lives there. Correct. Most of the time at that time of night they were going there because that's where they lived at. Bill, ever the old school gentleman, always walked on the outside, closer to any vehicles that might be traveling down the road at that time of the day. But mainly it was quiet. Any cars 
were either neighbors headed home or someone who was lost. As safe a place to walk as you could find. You get a feeling, and I can't explain how you get a feeling. One, I didn't want to go for the walk that night to begin with. And I asked him, I said, can we just not walk tonight? I said, mm-hmm. I just don't feel comfortable. Can we just not walk? And he says, no. He says, I want to walk. He says, I'll go by myself. No, you're not going by yourself. So Gail, the supportive wife, laced up her walking shoes, grabbed a flashlight, and headed out with Bill, hoping once she got walking, she'd feel better. Ever the protector, Bill donned his reflective safety vest in case any cars were traveling their path, as it was after seven and already dark this time of year. But this night would be anything but routine. The Kellys headed south on the street, enjoying the conversation and the cool January temperatures. Just a few minutes away, a glassy-eyed Shirley Cumberland Taylor left a local bar two miles north and got in her 2007 GMC Sierra pickup truck after consuming between six and 12 beers, according to her own statements to different police officers, and headed the five to 10 minute route home to Mark West Road. Although she was 50, she was living at home with her parents, Wesley, known as Pee Wee, and Dola Cumberland, very well-known members of the Coast community. Mark West Road is a three-and-a-half-mile, two-lane, dead-end road in rural Harrison County. It is a quiet, 30-mile-per-hour speed limit for families who enjoy the country life just outside the city of Gulfport. Gulfport was not a sleepy little port city anymore, and families had been moving north of Interstate 10 for decades. From the Gulf of Mexico at Highway 90, it is six miles due north to Interstate 10. The area of Gulfport just north of there is called Orange Grove, and folks had been settling there since the 1970s. The bar, two miles north, was actually named for its location in proximity to I-10. Both the Cumberland and the Kelly families had called this area of Gulfport home for decades. Bill's sister Sandra Kelly still does. In Gulfport, we've always lived here. We've always lived on, uh, well, growing up, we all lived on John Clark Road. And uh, I left I left first, I think, uh, going to college. And uh, and it was hard for me to separate from Bill. He came to, you know, to my grandmother's house to kind of see me off. And we, we wouldn't kind of talk to each other about it at first, but then we got off by ourselves and, you know, told each other we'd miss each other and all that kind of stuff. Sandra... The older sister of Bill and Wayne adored her little brothers. We were, uh, a clo- I felt like a close-knit family. Billy was, see, I called him Billy when I was growing up. After he, uh, after he passed away, no, I'm sorry. After uh, when Gail came into the picture, we started calling him Bill. More grown up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was fine with us. We didn't matter. But are you older sister or younger sister? I'm the oldest. I have. And I have two younger brothers, Wayne and then Bill. Bill was the youngest of the three children. And uh, growing up, Bill and I were the closest. Uh, I, sometimes I felt like it was me and him against our, against the middle brother. You know, the middle brother was kind of tough. That's you know? funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so he and I would kind of gang up. We'd have to gang up. As they got a little older... Sandra would watch them and try to keep them out of trouble, which she said they always seemed to have no trouble finding. Uh, Wayne and Bill was always getting in trouble. And uh, back then we had on, we, we had a little farm, you know, with chickens and, and cows and stuff, well, one cow and so a couple of pigs. And Wayne, Daddy was a, uh, he worked at the VA hospital, but Daddy was a volunteer fireman. And... Uh, they wanted, Wayne and Bill wanted to see Daddy. So the only mama said they were working. He was working. So they got it in their heads that all we need to do is set a fire and Dad will come. <laughs> oh, my so, goodness. So they went How out. How old were they about? Oh, they were young. They were like six, seven, eight, nine, somewhere along there. They were young. And uh, and I think Bill, I think Wayne talked Bill into being the... The fire setter, and they just set the chicken poop on fire, you know. And as soon as it, I mean, it didn't go up in flames or anything. Mama saw, she went out there and put it out, and 
and she told him, you just wait till your daddy gets home now. So when daddy come in the back door, they, he had to pull him out from underneath the, 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 the dining room table. Where yeah. were you? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I wasn't there, or I didn't see it. I don't remember they that didn't part. They did tell Big Sister. Yeah, but, but I was there when dad come in and got on his hands and knees to go up underneath there and get him. You know? So I think it might have been a time when I, maybe I was at school and they were both homesick. I think it's probably what happened because I wasn't there when it happened. Other times, she said, the boys would get into scuffles. And I, at one time when we were older, this is funny too to me, one time when we were older, we stayed in during the summers by ourselves and I'd watch them fix lunch and all that kind of stuff. And so I fixed them some hot dogs, I think. And Wayne gobbled up his two dogs first and Bill's taking his time fixing his hot dogs like he was. He was, you know, it, it, it had to be kind of right. You know, he, you look at his hot dogs and mm, that looks good. I, you know, have to make, make mine like that. Well... Wayne asked Bill, he says, can I have your hot dogs? Wayne already had two. And Bill said, no, these are my hot dogs. And so then Wayne started making uh, jokes about the hot dogs, you know, maybe what was in them and all that. And they had chili on them too. And uh, Billy says, do you really, really, really want these hot dogs? And Wayne says, yes, I do. So he took a put them right up against his <laughs> chest. And then he says, here's a little tea to go with it and poured it over poured it over his they were always like that, always getting into stuff like that. But they still loved one another, you know. I mean, it was just childhood pranks and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And uh, and they'd fight sometimes, you know, as boys do, you know. I mean, one time they were fighting, and I started stomping my feet saying, stop, stop, stop. And they got so shocked at me doing that that they just, like, stopped and looked. And then we all laughed and laughed and <laughs> laughed, you know. But the worst, Sandra said, was when the boys would decide to team up on her. Yeah, we were always close. One time, Bill, there was a snake. They killed a snake. Then they chased me around the yard with it, you know, and I was screaming and running and all that kind of stuff. Brothers, you know, brothers mm-hmm. growing up. Thankfully, Sandra survived her siblings' pranks, and they all grew into adulthood. Sandra remembers the day Bill told her that he loved Gail and was going to marry her. She said she was overjoyed. She had gotten to know Gail because the couple would occasionally include Sandra on their date nights, and Sandra could see just what a wonderful relationship they had with one another. And even as the years passed, their love for one another only grew, as did their family. They wanted to build a house of their own. Bill's mother gave them land, and they built a house there. Sandra then built a house behind them. It was truly one big happy family, and Bill loved being a family man. First one was a daughter, and I mean, next one was a boy, and then I had a, another daughter. We've got two girls, one boy. But he was an excellent dad. People would see him because he kind of looked like Santa Claus. Yeah, he did. So whenever we would go to the stores and stuff, people would say, "I think, I think he might be Santa Claus. Might be Santa Claus." <laughs> and I'd look at him, ask him, ask him, you know, and he'd carry candy canes in his pocket and give to the kids. So he played into no, it. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did. No, he, he loved that. Oh he wore God. a Santa hat, Santa hat from, mm-hmm. thir- from Thanksgiving on through Christmas. Right. Everywhere he went. Even working. And he worked out on a job site doing foundation work. He had Santa's hat on. Did he act like what people thought Santa should act like yes. too? Was he yeah. that personality? He's very cheerful, very jolly, very pleasant just to be around. Yes, he was. I mean, I think. Yeah. He was. But he was my best friend. His kids also loved being around. They were used to being around their extended family as well. Kristen, the eldest of Bill and Gail's children, remembers her childhood so fondly. Her eyes literally light up as she relives a memory with her father. Listening to her, I almost feel like I'm there. And I want to say while I was little, like we lived in like an apartment or something like that, but eventually we moved behind where my grandma and grandpa live on uh, John Clark Road, and that's where... I pretty much grew up until I was like in third grade when they built the house that they had. Um, My dad had a 1980 uh, Corvette that I'd probably say that was his first kid. Like he, but I was like a big saver. Like he would like save money for things. Um, So he actually saved up money to buy this brand new Corvette that he'd always wanted. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, we still have it. It's not running, but, you know. What color it's, is it? It's white, and it has, like, a uh, white, it has a um, uh, T-tops on it. Her eyes smile when she talks about riding around in that Corvette as a kid. 
her dad started his own family when she got to junior high school. When he actually started his foundation business, um, he didn't have money like for like getting a truck or something like that to start because that was the car that he drove. So people would joke, like, oh, I don't know if I can afford you as a foundation man driving around in a Corvette to do work. <laughs> but it wasn't the case. It was just that's what he had to use to go, you know. He worked hard and he saved. But Kristen said they never went without the important things and they never wanted for their parents' love and attention. Yeah, he, my dad was, like, a lot of fun. Um, like, when I was a kid, we would go. Used to, you couldn't, uh, you didn't put your trash out. Like, you had to take your trash to the dump. So, we would call it going to the dump or whatever when I would take trash. So, me and my dad would go to the dump, and then we'd always stop by the um, convenience store or whatever to get, like, ice cream or a treat or something like that. Um, so, that was always fun, and we would do that. And then... Um, I was an adult until I actually found out. So, a long time ago when you would get the uh, Neapolitan ice cream sandwiches, they were like a solid color on the outside so you didn't know what flavor you were getting on the end. Well, now they're labeled so you can tell if it's chocolate, starts with chocolate, strawberry. And I didn't realize it until I was an adult because we would always open it up and see like, which one are you going to start on? Because we were both looking for the, the better flavor at the top. And I didn't realize that we were looking for opposite flavors the whole time. Like I always <laughs> wanted to have the chocolate on the top and he wanted the reverse. So I was like, I never knew that. Um, but we would do fun things like that. And then we'd ride around in his car um, and we'd take the tops off. We'd always want him to drive really, really fast in it. You know, back in the day, you know, there wasn't, like, all this car seat stuff. Nice. <laughs> so there was, like, three kids riding around in this car. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was good times. Kristen got married in 2005, and her daddy walked her down the aisle. But 2005 was a tough year for the coast and for the Kellys. Hurricane Katrina struck the Mississippi Gulf Coast with a vengeance on August 29th. And the Kelly family would soon be struck with a more personal crisis. Bill's father, Kristen's grandfather, Elton Kelly, would fall ill. Kristen quit her job and spent much of the last few months of his life helping take care of him. He would pass nearly one year after Hurricane Katrina. Bill was still busy from the reconstruction going on along the coast after Hurricane Katrina and hired Kristen to come work for him. I started working for my dad then. So I actually worked for my dad, um, that was the end of 2006. So I worked for my dad for 2007. So I actually pretty much got to spend every day with my dad the last year that he was alive. So how was that working with your dad? It was so much fun. <laughs> so we would do like outside, um, we would, you know, of course, work outside, and then so some of the times were, like, really hot, and my dad was, we were both trying to lose weight, you know, so we would, like, come up with, like, different, like, diet snacks or whatever. It's like, okay, so whenever it's lunchtime, like, we'd get an hour for lunch, and we'd go to different restaurants or whatever, so, like, one day I would pay for lunch, and the next day he would pay for lunch, and vice versa, and he would always joke, because he was like, how come whenever it gets around to my time to pay, we go to a more expensive place, but <laughs> whenever it's your time to play, we go for a cheaper place. Um, that's just how, you know, my dad was. He would always joke about it. And then even, like, you know, my dad would always be like, you know, you want daddy to get it? You know, like, if you came or whatever, like, he would, you know, do anything, you know, for you. Like, he felt like, you know, it was his job to take care of his kids, you know. So, like, he would always um, do that for sure. Um, but, yeah, we did all kinds of um, different jobs. We would, you know, get up in the morning, we'd go to uh, McDonald's for breakfast, and he'd get, like, two egg McMuffins and, like, apple pies sometimes. Like, he loved their apple pies. Um, and he was just always real, um, he just had a really good uh, spirit about him. Like, he was really happy. The 2007 holiday season would be a nice respite from the craziness that the last couple of years had been with the hustle and bustle of all the reconstruction along the Mississippi Gulf Coast and following the lengthy illness and death of Bill's dad. It was a time to reflect on all the good memories and spend some much-needed time together as a family. Plus, Kristen says her daddy loved Christmas because children everywhere thought he was actually Santa Claus and he played into it. 
They look like Santa Claus. I don't know if they told you that. They yeah. Did. <laughs> okay, so like little kids would think he was Santa. Like they would be standing by their dad or their mom, and they were like pulling their pant leg. You know, like it was like serious. You know, and then so my dad eventually started carrying candy canes in his pocket. <laughs> Your mom so, was telling me that like he totally played into yes, it. Yes. So he would give him candy canes. And he stuff. wasn't gonna upset some little kid. No. He would be Santa Claus. Yeah. It was serious. So he would wear his um, during Christmas. Even working outside, he had his work. Santa hat and then so he would wear his Santa hat while he's out there on his excavator. Bill's sister Sandra recalls how he looked forward to this every year. Because he kind of looked like Santa Claus. Yeah he did. So whenever we would go to the stores and stuff people would say I think I think he might be Santa Claus. Might be Santa Claus. And I'd look at him ask him ask him you know and he'd carry candy canes in his pocket. Bill told Kristen that this Christmas would be extra special. Christmas was like a real big deal in our house, so we always had like this. Um, I'm trying not to it's cry. Okay. It's <laughs> absolutely okay. Um, like we always have like this huge Christmas tree, like I'm talking like 15, 16 feet high. Um, and then it was just like this huge deal, you know. And they would like um, pull logs out the fireplace, like you know, Santa Claus came and things like that. And you know, as you get older, there's not like the whole magic part of Christmas that so it kind of changes a little bit but um I remember talking about dad he was saying that um that that Christmas you know that it should be special because that would be the last Christmas that Daniel would be in the house you know and um I was like well you know she's going to college you know like she's going to be back and he's like no it's not the same thing right. you know when your kids grow and go out being a parent now I completely understand what right. he's talking about but you know it was just kind of funny to say you know it was that year we ended up getting a big Christmas tree or whatever and then for some reason like Christmas dinner is always like really good and that year mom like really did it you know so it was like it was so good and my dad was like he was like man this roast is so good you know so it was kind of like it was the last Christmas you know you just didn't know it didn't know it the last Christmas present Kristen bought her daddy was a set of books on restoring the Corvette. He ended up, that's kind of a funny story how that worked out, but, um, so he, um, he, you know, that's what he had, you know, back then. I was like his, basically his first child, I would say. And then, um, um, he kept it all the time. And shortly before he passed, he was going to start restoring it. That was like, we actually got on books or whatever that Christmas for like restoring it, you know, but didn't get to do it. Um, but yeah, we still have the, the car or whatever. That Corvette is still sitting in the drive. As 2007 faded into 2008, Bill and Gail returned to their routine and their routine was good. Bill and Gail had passed the halfway point in their three mile evening walk on the downhill stretch toward home and a nice relaxing evening. Just a few days left before Brandon would return to mission work in Hawaii and Danielle would leave the nest for the University of South Alabama. Gail hears a vehicle coming. They move to the other side of the road and step into a private drive to put space between them and the truck. But the truck seems to move with them. The speed limit on Mark West Road is 30 miles per hour, but the truck is approaching them much faster, it seems. And then, Gail says it happened in an instant. Both Gail and Bill are pushing and pulling to get the other to safety off the roadway. But it doesn't matter. This driver swerves across the two lanes of roadway and into a private drive, going approximately 57 miles per hour, according to accident reconstruction, when she strikes Bill Kelly head-on with the hood of her GMC truck. He is thrown off. 125 feet down the road Gail rushes to him he is motionless we had walked down the end of the road toward the Den Ed part started coming back up past our house and it kind of goes up a hill and we were walking up the hill and right when we got kind of close to almost the top of it I told I call him dad but I said look dad I said there's somebody coming down the road and they're coming fast we need to get out of the road now and he was on this side, and I was on the inside of him. And I pulled him into, um, there's like a private drive, mm -hmm. private drive. And um, she came, and she came swerving straight down the road, came over, 
got him, took him to Inverdale. And it happened just about that fast. And then she spun around and um, I leaned down to him, told him I loved him. I didn't want anything to happen to him. I'm sorry. That's okay. Then uh, I ran to her and I asked her who she was. And she told me who she was. I said, excuse my friends. Oh, shit. Cumberland's daughter. And she said, yes, I am. I said, can I borrow your cell phone? I don't know where it is and you can't have it anyways. Let me repeat, in case you didn't catch what Gail said, the driver, Shirley Cumberland Taylor, Gail's neighbor, just refused to allow Gail to use her cell phone to call for emergency assistance while Bill, still wearing his reflective vest, lies on the ground. According to testimony taken at the scene, Taylor's exact words were, quote, I do. It's in my purse, and I don't know where it's at. And if I knew where it was at, I wouldn't let you use it. End quote. Gail is in shock, but doesn't have time to argue. She runs as fast as she can the last quarter mile or so home to call 911. Brandon and Danielle are home and rush back to the scene with their mother. And she was yelling at the kids, and she says, look, she says, if you don't get out of my effing way, you're going to be next. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kill you. Kristen recalls that last day. Like, when I tell you, like, our life was just, there's nothing really to complain about. Like, it was just, you know, it's like you live this, I don't say blessed, but yeah, blessed life, you know, where it's not perfect, but I mean, it's good, you know, like. My brother said one time, he was like, man, it was so neat living when we had, like, grandpas and dads and stuff, you know, and it was, like, there was no, you know, um, pain there, and then it's just, like, something that day when it happened, it was just, like, me and um, my ex were eating that, I got off work, I'd started a new job at, um, and Taylor, because me and my dad were going to build houses because the market had slowed down. So I was going to, so he wouldn't have to pay me anymore. I was going to get like a regular job so we could get that started. And then um, we went to, me and uh, my ex, we went to Cracker Barrel. We were eating dinner. And then me and my sister, we would go to the gym. And then, um, so she was still at home. And then Brandon was still home for Christmas vacation because he was about to go back to Hawaii. And then, um, I called, uh, I was calling the house and nobody was answering the phone. And I was like, you always kind of like worry or think, you know, silly stuff, you know? And I was just like, it's, you know, it's fine. I'm just worrying, I'm just worrying, I'm just worrying, you know? And then, so I finally get in touch because I was like, well, I'm just going to go over there and and find out, you know, what's going on. But Brandon ended up, uh, answering the phone and he said that dad's been hit by a car. Kristen thought Brandon was making a joke and told him it wasn't funny, but Brandon didn't laugh. He just told his sister it wasn't good and to pray. On Mark West Road, the calm of the evening had been replaced with chaos and horror. Lights and sirens now lined the roadway, and activity was everywhere. Gail says everything happened so fast, but believes to this day that Shirley was intentional in her actions that night. She had so much anger inside of her that I really think she, there's no way, even if you're drunk, that you can't go pretty much in two lanes. She sped up and came over into, I mean, it happened quick. Yeah, I I was not hurt at all. I don't know how. I really don't. Law enforcement on the scene told the family to go home. There was nothing more they could do. Gail knows she must begin informing the other family members. Meanwhile, Kristen has finally made it to Mark West Road, but her way is blocked by emergency vehicles. She is frantic to know what's going on, to know that her daddy is going to be okay. I get to the top and then you can see like there's the ambulance down there and then there's lights and there's like traffic and you can't get through. And so I was telling him, I was like, look, I was like, that's my dad. Like I need to get through like I need to at least get to the other side so I can get to my mom you know like I need to find out what's going on and then he was they were just like no you can't get through don't worry about it you can't get through you have to wait and I was just like well is he okay you know like they wouldn't do anything 
Well, then um, the one guy, uh, Mark, who was our you know neighbor down at the end, he's over, and I was like, hey, I was like, what's going on, you know? And then he was like, he's like, look, he's like, you know, your dad's been hit by a car. He's like, the only thing I can do is get you to your mama. And I was like, okay. I was like, well, what do we need to do? Because they were going through the woods to go around. Well, the police told them, they said, you know, he's like, oh, weren't you just on the other side? And they were like, well, yeah. And then, so they ended up, it was dark by this time. And then so they ended up, taking us on their four-wheelers to back through the woods so we could get around. What Mark Cumberland doesn't tell Kristen is that it's his sister Shirley who is responsible for the ensuing tragedy. I didn't know anything. Like, I didn't know what was going on. I was just trying to get to my mom, you know, and then because they wouldn't let me get through. So then um, he dropped us off in the woods in the dark and me and um, my ex-husband and then you know, can't see nothing you know so we finally find a fence and we're following the fence back up because I kind of knew like how the properties were divided up well we ended up finally getting through you know and then uh I just remember the whole time thinking like you know this I can't believe this is happening I can't believe this is happening and then we're finally trying to get I knew by the time we were in the woods that my dad had died because Brandon had texted uh, my ex, and he said he went to be with Jesus. Kristen enters the family home, and she knows life as she's known it is no more. Her mom is on the phone and tells the person on the other end that she's home now. She sighs. Gail knows where all her kids are. One less worry on a newly grieving mind. Her kids are safe. Kristen tears up reliving this moment, even 13 years later. And I do too. I never knew Bill Kelly, but her pain is palpable. It's the pain of a little girl losing her first love, her daddy, and I can feel it across the room. It's all consuming and it's still so senseless. Kristen tell me that she kept the sweater, pants, and shoes she was wearing that day for a really long time, but she never ever wore them again. It's so interesting the similar rituals we go through to cope with such great loss. Like Kristen, I can remember what I wore to my grandfather's wake and funeral. And like her, I never wore those clothes again, associating them with death. I guess subconsciously, I wasn't willing to take the chance by wearing them again. Everyday rituals, too, that we don't think about normally become lodged in our psyche. I remember, like, my mom walking up the stairs, you know, to go to bed, and my dad went there to be there again, you know. I'll never forget that. Just the sound that she made. Kristen said now that she is a parent, she thinks about all that her dad has missed, and even more so, all they have missed in his absence. Like, being a parent, too, like, makes you think about things different because it's like you raise your child or you love your child and you want all these good things for your child. And it's like my dad, like, you know, like, I know my grandma and my grandpa wanted all that for him. And then I know that he had a good life and he did the right thing. And then for his life to end like that, you know, it's just not, it's not fair. And that's the part that's, you know, like yeah. he has, you know, grandkids that he didn't get to meet. And, you know, my mom was like, always want grandkids, you know. Sorry, I can't wait to have grandkids. And then my dad was like, we were talking about it one day and my dad said that he, um, uh, we were talking about, you know, having kids or whatever. And he said, you know, he said, he said well, I hope that you wait a little while. He said, because... Because me and Mom didn't really get that much time together just being ourselves, you know? Because I was there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you know, I know that my dad was looking forward, you know, to spending that time with my mom. Bill's sister, Sandra, was Gail's first call that night. I had stopped by, by my mother's. I had worked late. Uh, I was working for, I had co-founded a nonprofit after I retired. I retired in 2006. And, and so I was working, I was at a director's meeting uh, at that time, board of directors meeting, and I stopped by my mother's house, which, I, you know, after dad died, dad died in 2006, we started picking up on the fact that mom was having some cognitive issues. So I um, 
would step, you know, she was living by herself at that point. So I was, so I was stopped there. Her and I were watching TV and the phone rang and I picked it up and it was Gail. And she says, I have some bad news. And my first thought was my nieces and nephews. You know, I said, oh my goodness, something's happened to my niece or nephew. And then she said, your brother Bill is dying tonight. And I was like, what? And I, and I think I even said, are you kidding? You know, and she said, no, I wouldn't kid about anything like that. And I'm like, wait, wait, stop. You know, it's like, I couldn't cry. I was just in total shock, you know. And, of course, Mom was sitting there. And I said, well, tell, where is he? What happened? And she said, we were walking and he got hit by a car. And I said, well, where is he right now? And she said, I told him to take him to Raymond's. And so that when Mama heard, you know, she says, what's going on? What's happening? So I turned to her. And I don't know how I told her. I think I may have said Bill died or... Bill's gone or something. I, I, I don't know. And she she started screaming. I mean, she just, and Gail said, my kids come in, let, let, I'll deal with them and you deal, you know, with her. And so I tried to calm mom down. She got up and started just walking around the house. And she started saying, my baby, my baby, my baby. And then when I got into, when she got into her bedroom, it was like she was trying to climb the wall. My baby, my baby, my baby. And I'm, I'm standing there staring at her. Um, I thought, what's wrong with me? I, this is not real. This is not real. I said, I can't cry. Still in denial and shock, Sandra rushed to Gail's as soon as she could. So when I was coming up Mark West Road, I could see all, all the blue lights and, and all the cars were stopped on the side of the road. And I, so I got up, they said they, they're not letting anybody through. And I turned to the crowd that was gathered there and I said, well, that, surely they'll let me through. I'm his sister. And when I walked up, got almost to the corners van, I could see the corners down over to the side. I saw Bill in his in his in the body bag and they were putting him in the car. And I, I just thought, this is real. You know, it's but I still couldn't cry, I still couldn't do anything. I just stood in the middle of the road. And finally I I walked over to the side of the road. I couldn't breathe. And this lady, I don't even know who she was, she was one of the neighbors that that are up in that area walked over and hugged me and she says are you all right and I said I can't cry that's all I could think of is I can't cry why can't I cry and uh then I saw the coroner and I called him over I knew him from not personally but I knew him from the hospital working in the hospital and he came up and and I and I said that really is Bill Kelly you know he said yes I said well that's my brother the coroner told Gail that he had died instantly and that it was their neighbor who had been intoxicated who had killed Bill. Sandra can't believe it. Well, her parents always got along with us. I mean, her sister, her brother, I mean, I mean, we used to go to their house for barbecues. So, but we never saw her. She told me, she says, you know, Sandra, uh, this is her, at least her fourth DUI. This is not her first. And I was like, what? And, uh... And she said, yeah, and she was talking about, she started telling me all kinds of things. She says, I, we, she's gotten out of DUIs. You know, we, and she said, we, most of the people in this neighborhood knew that something like this was going to happen one day. She was not injured at all. And um, they took her um, in custody, and they brought her to the jail. Harrison County Sheriff's? Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, Sandra said to call up Tom Payne. And Tom made it so um, she couldn't get out right away. Yeah. He and was the... He's an attorney. He's a good friend of mine. So There's so many pains. I right. right. <laughs> he's, a, he's an attorney. And he got them to keep her in there for as long as, as they could. Right. But, of course, she did get out. And she was out for 18 months before What was she trial. charged with? Uh, DUI. And Causing death. Causing death. DUI felony causing death. And it, she was supposed to have gotten pretty close to 25 years. Now, one thing that I remember, too, is this time, evil this, this situation was. At the trial, I, at least a couple of people witnessed, and you correct me if I'm wrong, okay? But I remember they I said... I wasn't in there. Okay. Remember? Oh, okay, that's I right. You were not. There. You were not. Because you had to testify because yes. you were involved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. She, uh, one of the uh, policemen, or somebody at the scene, said the words, and Gail had actually told me this before, because uh, I uh, before the trial and everything, but, uh, that she had told uh, the um, 
she told everybody, she told the policeman, she says, I, I was, I wanted to kill that man. I hope he's dead. Well, I have read that actually uh, yeah. online somewhere. Yeah. I wanted to kill that man. I hope he's dead. And also in the, in the, in the uh, trial, they had a lab technician come and verify, you know, even at the hospital that went to take her for her, uh, Blood test, alcohol blood test. Uh, she told him, says, I sure wanted to kill that man. I hope I did it. And she said, you did. All their lives changed in an instant. The instant that a drunken Shirley Cumberland Taylor slammed her truck into Bill Kelly at 57 miles per hour. The trajectory she chose that day has rippled through the Kelly family and it's ongoing though they have processed it in different ways. So I call it the before time and the after time, really and truly. So I remember that day, like, you know, they, you know, something crazy happens like 9-11 or, you know, John F. Kennedy getting shot. It's the same thing. Like, I remember that day exactly. And that was the day that everybody in my family changed. So I can go back and I can look at pictures, and I can tell you by a picture if it was before or after, just by the look on their face. There's a picture that I have. My mom doesn't take pictures, really, anyway. But there's a picture I have of my mom when she was at, we did a surprise um, anniversary for them when they were married for 25 years. And there's this picture where she's, like, looking at Brandon, and she just has this joy on her face. Like, normally she wouldn't take pictures, and I just love that picture because it's like you can see. In the immediate aftermath, Gail was adamant that Danielle would still go to school, even though she thought she needed to stay home for a while. Despite the financial shock of losing Bill, the breadwinner of the family, Gail was determined that this woman would not destroy her children's future. That was one thing she could control. Gail is angry. And she remembers everything the Cumberland family did in the aftermath. Perhaps it was to assuage some of their own guilt, or perhaps they felt genuine remorse. But to Gail, they were pouring salt into open wounds. They came to the house and knocked on the door and asked if they could come to his funeral. And um, I said, yeah. I said, yes, you can come. The kids were mad, and they said, why? I said, because they need to see what was done. Not because I want them to come here and pay respects. Not because I want to see them, but because I want them to see what their daughter did to my husband. I don't say that Bill is dead. I say Bill was killed That's because right. there is a difference. And people say, oh, you're a widow, you know, your husband is. No, he's not deceased. He was killed. She made a conscious decision yes. that night to go to a bar and get behind that truck. And when she got behind that truck, it became a, a lethal weapon. weapon. The trial was 18 months after the crash. So Shirley was out free to carry on with her life. And she did. At least it appeared that way to the Kelly family. It seemed to them she felt no remorse at all for her actions that had destroyed their lives. And she often with her mother, kept showing up at public places where the Kellys were. Danielle worked at uh, Coach. Kristen worked at um, Ann Taylor at the outlet mm -hmm. mall. They found out where they worked at. So the mom and Shirley both would go into where they worked at to shop purposely. Not to come in and apologize? No to come in there just to kind of gloat that the daughter was out. Please, that's and then, crazy. And then we went to um, McAllister's, and Bill used to go eat McAllister's all the time. So, I mean, everybody in there knew who we were. And the mother and the daughter came walking in, and the mother's Dola. But Dola and Shirley came walking in, and uh, me and Danielle were sitting, like, at the side, and I was listening to this one group of table over here talking about how wonderful Shirley Taylor was that this family, you know, is really taking her to the cleaners and all this stuff. And then they walk in. And so I go up to the manager. I said, this lady here killed my husband. Either she sits at that other side of the restaurant or she gets out. I said, she's not coming and sitting at this table with these friends that they know. 
And the manager went up and said, you either have to leave or sit over on the other side. And I looked at that one table and I said, that's my husband you're talking about. So they remained mad at you. Oh, God, yeah. They, they think that it's my fault. One, I should not, we should not have been walking on Mark West Road. Two, I pushed him out on the road. The trial only seemed to force Gail to relive the worst day of her life as the black box in the truck proved that Taylor had, in fact, increased her speed as she approached Bill and Gale. Um, she was going uh, probably like about 40 miles an hour. When she saw Bill, she went faster. She got up to 55. Taylor's father approached Brandon in the bathroom during the trial and apologized. But it was too little too late. Gail believed no one tried to stop Shirley or hold her accountable when it mattered. Not friends who testified during the trial to what a wonderful person she was. Not family. And not the Harrison County justice system. Gail was testifying so she couldn't be in the courtroom. She couldn't listen to what she believed to be lies and manipulations by the defense or the excuses for Shirley's actions, like the BAC test, was flawed or expired. But the kids remained. At the very least, Shirley would have to look at them. On the stand, Kristen says, Shirley never once said she was sorry for her actions, nor did she any of the times that she showed up at her work. The defense tried to put the onus of Taylor's anger on some kind of row between the families. But Kristen says that wasn't the case at all. Uh, they were going to go out there like, did y'all have beef with them? Like, you know, like, why was she talking to y'all like that and saying all this stuff, you know? Oh, sorry. That may be my husband. <laughs> hey, babies. Are we interviewing somebody right now? Oh. Not sorry. Okay. Um, I'm going to leave the door cracked. I'm interviewing her right here. Okay. He's going to get his stuff. <laughs> okay. But, um, uh, so they were, they were like, we'll go either way, you know, with this. Because, I mean, like, why was she acting like that? And to me, she was just probably that drunk because she was just completely out of her mind, you know. And to say the things that she said, said. Yeah, it was bad. Like, yeah. That's not. She, the police officer said that um, when she was in the car, that he said uh, that she was just running her mouth the whole time. And he said, well, I hope I killed that man. I'll do it again. I, I hope I killed that. Paper. Yeah, and then uh, the guy said, you probably did. So, you know. So she had to be out of her mind. Yeah, yeah. Just had so much to drink. But see, that's the whole thing, too, about with drunk driving. So, yeah, you know, you're driving in your car, you're drunk, you hit somebody. Well, did you mean to do it? Well, no, you didn't mean to do it. But the problem is, is that you don't realize that's not the problem. The problem was way back when, when you were of a sober mind, and you said, hey, you know what, I'm going to go to the bar but and that's get drunk. When you made the that's when you made the decision. It was way a long time ago that decision right. was made, you know? And it's just like, that's the part that nobody wants to have ownership with you know and it's not that you know and then also like so he did the judge finally went through so their whole case was is that if my dad wouldn't have been there he wouldn't have died ultimately shirley cumberland taylor was sentenced to 18 years in prison but she would serve just over seven she never asked me for for forgiveness she never acted like she wanted forgiveness you know I mean, like, the trial, like, and this is the whole other thing, too, is, like, I remember with, with drunk driving, a lot of the problem is, is that a lot of people like, oh, well, you know, I did it that one time, you know, you know, I had that too much to drink that one time, you know, that could have been me, you know, and it's like, yeah, it could have been, you know, but it wasn't, so, you know, you know better, and you can do better, you know, is a lot of it. And I didn't really understand the whole system until you get thrust into it. So the first thing I didn't even realize is like, it's called criminal justice. You know, it's criminal justice. It's justice for her. I never thought about that. 
Yeah, it's her justice. It's not my dad's justice. You're right. It is her justice. What is fair for her and her rights? So, that's the first thing that I never thought about. And then when you go down there and you talk to the office, you know, the district attorney or whatever they're called, they want to know if your dad was a good person. You know? Well, is he, you know... Do people care about them? Do some people know them? Do you think you can get some people to come sit down here so they can show that he had friends? Because, you know, not that many people care that, you know, he might, she might not get that big of a sentence. Wow. Yeah. And that with drunk driving that usually you don't, um, he said you'd be lucky to get any time. You'd be lucky to get anything. In January 2018, Gail came home to a message on her answering machine from the Harrison County Jail. And um, I got a phone call, and it was from the um, jail, the wherever she was at. And they said, well, we have some changes and stuff. You need to give us a call. And so I called them up when I got home. And um, they said, well, you know, Shirley Taylor has died. I said, hot damn, it's about time. <laughs> and so the lady says, um... Um, are you the victim? I said, I sure am. I said, I've been praying for her to die ever since that night. I said, it's not nice. You're supposed to forgive. I said, but I can't do it. I said, I'm so thankful she's dead. And they had a, and you could look it up and they had a write up and she was at the fairgrounds. Everyone that loved her could go to the fairgrounds to celebrate her death. Gail says she still considers herself married and she goes to Bill's grave and talks to him, tells him about important family milestones. My youngest daughter just come here. You walked her down the aisle. My son. And that's what sucks. I know it. My son got married. He wasn't there. I have four grandkids. Well, he's never met any of them. You know, this is what we had. And it was good, and it was the same with the kids, because that's how we wanted the kids. I wasn't raised in a family that I was told, I love you. And I told Bill, our kids will know every single day we love them. We will tell them every single day we love them. My youngest one says, yeah, you tell him, you tell me I love you loads. Dad tells me I love you more. You know, and they knew this, you know. And he gave affection to his son, just as he did to his daughters. It was not, you know, you're a man, you're not supposed to, no. He showed him affection. He is an excellent father, and he is an excellent husband. Bill's sister Sandra turned inward to faith and forgiveness, but it was a process. She's a Christian and knew she couldn't hold on to hate. But she was so angry, and it wasn't a mistake that could just be undone. Bill was gone forever. I, I walked, when I left, I got, so as I was walking to the car, I said, God, I know I told you I was going to forgive her. I said, well, I don't think I can forgive this. She killed my brother. She, she used that car as a weapon, and she killed my brother. And all I can tell you is that in my heart, I heard the Lord say, Sandra, if I could die on the cross, and forgive you your sins, you can certainly forgive her. And I said, okay, okay, but you're gonna to have to help me. And uh, so then I started praying for her salvation. Ultimately, Sandra would go visit Shirley's brother, Mark, after Shirley died. Hearing the aftermath of Bill's death from his side gave her a different perspective and offered some closure. And I, Mark didn't acknowledge me when I walked up, I said, Mark, I said, I said, Mr. Cumberland, I'm Sandra Kelly. As soon as I said Sandra Kelly, he stopped what he was doing and gave me his full attention. And I said, I just want you to know that I just found out that Shirley had passed away. And uh, I just wanted to come and tell your father and just give some condolences. That's all. And, uh, and I, as, 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 and I told him, I said, I have forgiven her. I said, but it was very, very difficult. And uh, he says, I know. He says, what my sister did was horrible. And he said, he, she ruined our family, and she ruined your family. And he says, I'm so sorry. You know, so in a way that kind of made 
you know, it's like he was still very angry with his sister and she was dead, you know. Uh, he says, what it did to my parents, you know. Uh, Kristen, too, has counted on her faith in Christ to get her through the years without her father. Honestly, I don't know how anybody can get through life without knowing that there's something after, you know. Like, it gives you so much peace that, you know, one day I will see my dad again. Like, it's not right now, but one day it will be, you know. Yeah. And I look forward to that, you know. During the year and a half, following Bill's death and throughout the trial, Gail tells me, she'd been making plans to commit suicide. All of the joy of her life had just left her, and she felt she had no real reason to live anymore. Her kids were grown, they were self-sufficient, and she wanted her misery to just be over. The day the trial ended, the Kelly family went to eat and commiserate together at McAllister's, coincidentally the same place she had last seen Shirley before the trial. Gail was just going through the motions, though. In her mind, she was already gone. But Kristen had news that she had been keeping until the tragedy of the trial was over. It was time for some happiness in the Kelly family. I really think that when my youngest one, my oldest, would be my oldest granddaughter, Michaela, she's what gave me the reason to keep going because mm-hmm. I wanted to commit suicide. Brandon is a missionary, and Kristen is a single mom to Michaela. Younger sister Danielle got married in Hawaii last year, and while it was a happy day, Kristen mourned her father not being there to give his baby away. It's also, you know, I had seven more years, you know, with them as well, you know, and I think it's different knowing your parents. Well, a couple things of this is, me having my parents being the firstborn is a little bit different than the experience that she had being the baby, you know. So she did get to experience a lot of, I'll say the laxness, but you know, like when your parents are kind of cool, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it's more of that than they're like rah, 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 all the time, you know. So she did get to experience that. And dad, you know, dad loved, loved uh, Danielle. Like she was. His little pumpkin pie, you know. <laughs> so, um, she did, uh, he, uh, definitely loved him with Danielle. And then, um, he was definitely, uh, proud of Danielle, too. But, you know, I think a lot of it is, is you just have to put, um, like we just, we like box it up, you know. You just take that, put it in a little box, and put it on the shelf, and you just don't talk about it. You know, because you got to get through it. Now, was my dad missed that day? Of course. You know, would he love to walk his daughter down the aisle? Of course. But was he probably pissed because that was his job and he couldn't do it? Yes. But he was there. Bill was there in the memories of his wife, Gail, and his three children. He was there in the faces and expressions of his grandchildren, the eldest, Kristen's daughter, Michaela, nearly a teenager by this time. The family, though, still feels his loss every day and believes the loss of Bill Kelly has affected so many people. Shirley's choice to drive drunk that day has cost so much for so many. It's like, yes, like she like killed my dad and then, you know, my dad is gone. But it's almost like you take a pebble and you drop the pebble in the water and it's like the pebble, you know, sinks and then, you know, it's gone. But it's like you have all this ripple effect. So it's like it's it's ongoing. Like that incident is still affecting today. And it's not necessarily just affecting my family. You know, like there's people out there that who knows that my dad would have helped or came across or whatever and would have impacted their life in some way because that's just how he was. Yeah. You know, like if somebody needed something or somebody, um, he would be the first one to help you. Now Gail is a doting grandmother of four. She still lives in her and Bill's house on Mark West Road, just down the street from the Cumberland family property and the spot where her husband was killed. Gail admits she is still hardened 
by the loss of her beloved Bill, but she knows she is alive today because of her beautiful granddaughter, who came serendipitously just when she needed a reason to live. Join me next time for Episode 8, Another Tragedy in Gulfport, Mississippi. Traffic crashes are no respecter of persons. Even devoting your life to keeping the streets safe doesn't protect you and your family from a drunken driver. Special thanks to Louisiana Christian University for partial funding of this project. Proverbs 21, 21.